Bonjour, je m'appelle Michael et bienvenue dans Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational <laughs> deep dive analysis into a film. That's as much French as I could make happen. Wow, that's impressive. I was not yeah. expecting that. Thank you. I practiced. Today we're talking about the 2019 film Portrait of a Lady on Fire, written and directed by Celine Siyama. Joined today by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Aran. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Meaningful stare. And Alex Cayetas. Meaningful gaze back at you. <laughs> Tension. That was really beautiful, you guys. That's yeah, so it is great. <laughs> so this film is amazing. Before we dive in, I want to introduce our sponsor for this episode because it actually kind of plays a role in the conversation. So this episode is sponsored by Mubi, which is the curated streaming service that features exceptional films from all around the world. I first heard about this film on Mubi because they presented the exclusive online premiere of Portrait of a Lady on Fire in the UK and other territories back in April of 2020. And if you live in the UK, you can still stream the film on their platform. But this is the kind of movie that you can find on Mubi. You know, I was realizing that I grew up in a place where there was an art house cinema nearby so I could see movies like this, but a lot of people don't have a local art house cinema. And Mubi is kind of like your own personal art house cinema, and they've supported this podcast from the beginning. So just wanted to give them a shout out for supporting movies like this, supporting us, people talking about movies like this, and helping people see them. And you can get 30 days for free if you sign up for Mubi at Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. They're awesome. Check them out. So Portrait of a Lady on Fire is, in my opinion, a masterpiece. Uh, it's kind of <laughs> just one of the best movies ever made. I'm just going to throw that out there. Correct. Uh, I'm, I'm sad I didn't get to see it earlier uh, so that I could have put it on my top films of 2000s that we were doing in mm. 2010s because mm -hmm. it, it would have been very, very high up there. Uh, so yeah, this movie is incredible, I think. And just the level of filmmaking and how it deals with its subject matter and the themes and all the levels that it's working on simultaneously pitch perfectly the entire time. I, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I watched this uh, a couple months ago and was just kind of blown away by it in a way that's a very rare occurrence. I think for me and in general, I feel like when you sit down and you watch a movie and you're just like, Oh my God, that was one of the best movies I've ever seen. Like that's such a fun experience. And I had that with this movie I haven't been able to, kind of stop thinking about it and just the level of craft that's happening here. But I was kind of late to the party because Trisha and Brian, you'd seen it earlier. Brian, you even mentioned it on one of our earlier podcasts, but it was your one of my watching. So it was on the radar. And then Alex, you recently saw it and tweeted about it and potentially doing an episode about it. And there was excitement. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. I, I mean, I, I was genuinely just wanting to like, let you guys know, I've seen it. It's time. Let's do this. And yeah. the response I got on Twitter was like more likes than most tweets I've ever tweeted. <laughs> just just people genuinely love this movie, which makes mm -hmm. me really happy because I love this movie. And mm -hmm. I was really excited to see that our community that follows our podcast potentially feels the same way. Because, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you, Michael. I, I watched it on a good TV with nice headphones on and it was everything i want from the cinematic experience it was one of those special movies that does just feel like a modern masterpiece as you're watching it where all the choices that are being made all feel just perfect and it's elegant and it's simple but so complex at the same time and 
the use of sound design is amazing. And like, I don't even mm. miss that there's no music. And when, the, mm-hmm. when music does come in, it's used in this incredible way. It, mm. it was like moment after moment of that. It was building as I was watching it. And then it ends with like that final shot with that final piece of music. And it was just like, okay, I give up. You've, you've done it. <laughs> Good job, director. This was amazing. That's my, you know, my general sense yeah. of my viewing experience. Uh-huh. Right. Something you said is, you know, just being happy that so many other people are excited by it. And I think that's what happened to me was because I did watch it way back in early 2020. And when I was just sort of burning through a whole bunch of 2019 movies, and it made my, I think, top 10 list of the year. It was like maybe 10 or something, which one just shows how amazing 2019 was for movies yeah but also there are movies that were very high in that list that i haven't thought about in a year and like you said michael this is a movie that's just always in my head and i'm like i was like so excited to go back and watch it again and that kind of thing and yeah like you were saying alex it just sort of like it, it fires on all cylinders and it's the kind of movie where while you're in the middle of watching it you're just like something special is happening here mm-hmm. but so many foreign films don't see at least in our country in america like don't see this sort of wide release basically or or get really become part of the conversation so i thought it was gonna be a movie that i loved that nobody ever talked about basically and it's been really cool over the past uh, several months especially i think it's starting to come to movie and hulu and that kind of thing and now more people can see it and more people are talking about it and stuff so it's kind of that nice little feeling you get when you're like oh good this thing that i like other people are seeing now and appreciating that it's not just like this forgotten thing that we didn't see because we don't want to read subtitles. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. I have so many, so many thoughts. I, I agree with you guys. Like this movie is incredible. And, and one of the things that strikes me about it is just the confidence in the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is Celine Siama's fourth film. I've seen water lilies. Um, I haven't seen tomboy girlhood. I, think I believe girl. Oh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. I was like, there is one more, but even so, you know, there is this, deliberate stylistic really incredible vision here from the very first frame of this movie and you know it's a smallish movie in terms of budget and of course it's a small cast it's like a relatively small story if you think about it that way but it has this richness to it that i think helps it break through from some other movies that if you were an up-and-coming filmmaker or a filmmaker on the brink. And I'm not saying that Celine Siama is because she's been making movies now for quite some time. But if you are like a younger filmmaker that's trying to come up and make a, a splash, then I've seen a number of movies from directors like that. And they often don't come out of the gate quite this polished. Mm-hmm. Like this and Water Lilies, which is the other one of her films that I've seen, is definitely not this polished. So I think there's a really incredible marriage here of the subject matter, the periods kind of framework of it, and the confidence, the writing, the performances. There's a little bit of the magic that just came together on this movie that really elevates it beyond like, it's this little French film about this little romance. It's mm-hmm. not little in that sense. Yeah, exactly. It has this resounding presence to it. And especially from the performances where it feels like a really dense center of gravity almost that sort of sucks everything into it in a really powerful way. Just very, very impressive. I, I can't. You know, it just leaves such an impression. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just <laughs> right. very, very beautiful. Yeah. And that was something that struck me. Um, this movie and Moonlight 
both those movies, the original trailer didn't give away that they were gay stories, which I really appreciated because the first time watching those mov- both these movies, I was more engaged with not knowing, like, is this going where I think it's going? Or is that just my imagination? And that like adds to fun's not the right word, but it adds to the sort <laughs> of the, the, the ride that you're going on, that the film is taking you on, you know, but both of those movies, the trailer was just like, look at all this beauty that we are doing (laughs) like we are just doing this like very you know i think the trailer like starts with her on the boat like you know one of the opening shots of the of the the i guess flashback that the movie all is Mm -hmm. and then it has you know of course that epic scene where she turns uh where eloise turns around and she's wearing her mask and just cold eyes you know just that (laughs) and i was just like i want to see this movie i don't even know what it is but i can't wait to watch it you know And, and i think that all of that is what the movie actually feels like. You have some movies with cool trailers where then you watch the movie yep. like this doesn't really like the trailer was mm. like sort of some other thing. And this was mm-hmm. a movie where I, where it just feels like every five minutes you're getting a new just like burst of of artistic something. brilliance. Brilliance. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's like, <laughs> oh, that shot. They're just walking, but like it's gorgeous. Like all <laughs> that perfect. Kind of stuff. Standing on the clifftop, yeah. Right. Yeah. Or the um, the scene that I just want to watch for like an hour and a half is like the three of them standing in front of the fire with Sophie and they're ju- they're just like <sighs> doing stuff. And I'm like, I just yeah. want to like watch this for 90 minutes and that'd yes. be cool with that. Yes. Yeah. I feel like a problem that sometimes happens when there's a movie that's just so good is that there's so many things to talk about. Uh It's like, where do you even start? Like, What do you even do? And so maybe to just pick a thing and start with, as you just mentioned, Brian, there is this kind of flashback framing mechanics. Mm -hmm. the, The structure of the story is interesting and does a lot of work in especially the first third of the movie. There's a lot of, um, mechanics and, and kind of situational pressures that are created to create this tension, right? So it's, it starts with this beautiful montage of all these faces and looking and already we're dealing with like gays and who's the observer who's the observed what does it mean this is also a movie like there's just all of that is happening (laughs) right away it's setting up this kind of this framing story the reveal of the painting there there's some moments in this movie that almost feel like a horror film like they're done with that Mm -hmm. level of Mm -hmm. there's like a specter of something just around the corner or there's a literal specter that appears (laughs) a couple of times Yeah. yeah yeah so we get this framing there's this painting of this woman it clearly has huge significance cut to her on this boat and one of the few shots that has men in it none of them are facing the camera it's great Mm. (laughs) yep (laughs) but especially the second time watching it i was really trying to track and clock all of the pressures that are being put on marianne as she's uh arriving and you know her her job is to secretly paint a portrait of a woman that doesn't want to be painted like you can't let her know Mm. that you're like observing her for this reason the movie just does so much with the tension that that creates and the sequence. It's one of my favorites of the first walk that they go on where Marianne is trying to, we know she needs to see this person's face in order to draw it. So we are also watching so intently and so mm. closely to like, what are the little glimpses of the face that we're going to see and her ear? Oh, we can see a little bit of her ear. <laughs> and I feel like the film starts like right away and so strongly using the cinematography and the editing to put us in the headspace of these characters and get us kind of locked into this idea of, you know, that the shot reverse shot and how it puts you into perspective and the importance of perspective in the story. Well, backing up a little bit, because something that you just said reminded me of what struck me this time watching it, which was this is movie is a really good argument 
for delaying the introduction of a central character mm-hmm. to create intrigue, to create tension. The fact that we meet Marianne and there's so much, I'm talking about on the boat, and there's so mm-hmm. much that's brilliant about that introduction, as you're pointing out with like, you can't see the men's faces, the way the camera's like bobbing up and down um, on the boat that's super disorienting. And then she has to jump into the water mm-hmm. to save the canvas and her dress is literally weighing her down. Oh, it's a <laughs> symbol. Just really quick. I also love how it reveals so much character that she doesn't ask one of the yes. men to get her canvas. Right. She's, she jumps right in after it. You know, that right. already you're learning about this woman and, and her, what her values are and she just takes action. And about the world. It's really smart world building because we immediately realize she's not, there's no expectation that they will help her. She jumps Mm. in there because there's, in fact, an expectation from her that they will not help her, which we see true come true like Mm. right away when they she gets on the shore and the guy just dumps her stuff and is like, okay, bye. And it's way up there and your dress is soaking wet and probably weighs 50 pounds. Good luck. But then there's that long, long, you know, we see the night falling over the house and we meet Sophie no one's again no one's helping her there's this big empty house and it just draws out that introduction so long and creates so much intrigue and suspense around it it's beautiful it's a really good especially in a movie where thematically the question is about being known and being seen right and vulnerability such a good argument for waiting to meet a main character Right. And so many expectations are set then to along the way and sort of questions where just the opening opening scene with the the students asking about the painting. It's like we know something happened, but we don't know what it was. And we know something ended and we don't know how it ended. Right. Because otherwise she'd be like, that's my girlfriend. She lives in, you know, down the street. (laughs) Like, clearly it's not that it's don't bring that painting out. You know, I don't want to talk about it, whatever. And then, yeah, as you were saying, Trisha, like there's all this buildup to actually meeting Eloise, a lot of which is her sister killed herself. Like, you know, there's there's like this is in this family. And and I don't remember exactly when which of the two conversations with the mother, but the sort of idea of people have tried to paint her before, but she can't be painted and you know that kind of thing which honestly if i have anything negative to say about the movie it's the sort of like you got to paint her without her knowing and she's never no one's been able to paint her before is like okay that's fine but also it doesn't the movie doesn't really depend on that it's just kind of an, a way to get us into what the actual story is but then when we finally do meet her then it's still this sort of sense of like i've dreamt of running for so long i finally get to like be outside you know i don't know where mom's been keeping her but (laughs) but there's so much build up there of just who is this character what's going on with her what happened in the past since this movie is a a sort of frame story but also what's going to happen with this character now who seems to be maybe a little bit uh unhinged Mm -hmm. i agree with everything you guys are saying and you know as far as the the running line i realized you know if she was in a convent before you know she was a nun right and that's a very you know kind of Everybody's quiet and not making any noise and being very respectful. And so this really is her first burst of freedom and who knows how long since if she went into that path at a really young age. But yeah, as far as the opening of the movie, I was really struck, especially in a second viewing, realizing, okay, there's not a lot of dialogue happening. But wow, there's so much great screenwriting happening because yes, yes, you know, yes. this is not a movie that's just leaning on its gorgeous visuals to carry you through. It's also got these underlying tensions, questions, 
you know, the specter of suicide is hanging over their first walk. You know, that like, there's all these, all this work has been done to, to give you a reason to kind of be on edge or to be wondering or to be questioning or you want to know what's going to happen next with very few words being spoken. And that's just, that's always the most impressive screenwriting to me is just knowing exactly how to plant all those seeds, all those questions so that we do that work. You don't need the characters to talk about it much at all. Like we're the ones thinking that and we're the ones. Right. Mm -hmm. And the work that's being done when there is dialogue, but the dial, but it's all sort of either subtextual or it's communicating something to us that's not clear because we sort of know so much about Heloise when we meet her, but we also know so much about Maryam from watching her. So the scene I think mm. about is when she says, you know, sorry, I was hungry. I helped myself when she's just like yeah. eating. And there's this moment where you think she's going to have to like sort of apologize. And instead, the next thing she says is, is there any wine? Like, <laughs> right. like I already fed myself, but like, give me wine now, too. And the fact that she's not afraid to ask uh, Eloise directly about her sister, too. Yeah. So it's like, OK, now we are seeing this dynamic between these two characters, right? The one who is a little more comfortable with herself maybe and 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 sort of open and, and and that kind of thing and then this other one who is not has not been able to be that you know and and how that's how they're going to affect each other there mm -hmm. and the scene with sophie does so much work towards that also the few opening scenes with sophie and i want to mm. come back to her later because mm. i love her i love mm. sophie oh, she's so good the few scenes where we start to realize even though she is a servant she is not an extra in this movie. She is a real character. Mm -hmm. She has all of this agency. She has a viewpoint, a personality. She is a, an active participant in everything that's going on in this house and in this family. And so, yeah, when she was talking about how she was walking with uh, Eloise's sister and she said, well, we were walking on the cliffs. She was behind me. And then they found her broken body below. She's like, what makes you think that she wanted to die or that, she, you know, she went off on purpose, basically. She's like, well, she didn't cry out. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's smart. It's also really moving. It's It tells us as much about Sophie as she is telling us mm. about the sister mm -hmm. and about, by extension, Eloise. So lovely, lovely writing. Yeah. 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 And how much more powerful than if they just showed us that scene, right? Because it's I'm happening saying, in our head. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The idea of revealing character through subtext, you know, a, a really strong moment of that for me was when Marianne's talking to Eloise's mother and she she kind of laughs at, a, at something she says. She just kind of laughs out loud and says, oh, you made me laugh. Marianne says, I didn't say anything. And the mother says, oh, well, it takes two to laugh. And it, it was such it was a revealing of this deep loneliness of mm -hmm. all these women mm -hmm. where this mother was from Milan, from this like bustling, you know, city center of the arts and she was married off to this island in the middle of nowhere yeah and and she's stuck here because of you know just the way the world works at that time and you just sense in that moment oh my god this whole you can see how lonely she's been and and how she longs to get back to their place and she literally hasn't had somebody else to laugh with 
It's just like mm-hmm. deeply sad. Mm-hmm. When well, Eloise has a line that's kind of similar where, you know, Marianne says tomorrow you're going to be able to go on your walk by yourself. You'll be free. Mm-hmm. And Eloise says, you know, being alone is being free. Like, is that what you're applying? Mm-hmm. And, and so sort of a lot of complex ideas also being communicated in these tiny little lines that are getting at, like you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Five word lines. Right. It's amazing. Like, loneliness but also the importance of like being together and like freedom and just how all those things interact in these tiny little lines and it's yeah it's amazing the beginning does establishes the stakes also very clearly about Mm -hmm. how you know there's the specter of what happened to her sister because of the situation that eloise now finds herself in and how marianne has to paint this portrait and if the portrait is good enough then it will win her the marriage that she right. doesn't want and just right. so there's like there's a lot of stakes they're complicated stakes or at least how people feel about them are complicated but there was this quote that Celine, the, the director said in an interview i listened to which is i always dream of the viewer as being somebody who discovers a language the language is the film and a big part of the pleasure is getting the language getting the ideas and then speaking the language of the film in the end mm. and i nerd out about film language and i feel like this film has so much language and i think that's the other thing this intro is doing is getting us familiar with the grammar of the film and the pacing and what to pay attention to and what what are going to be the important storytelling tools that are going to be used and i just love that i think the 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 moment that really made it click for me is the the second time they go on their walk. You know, we know that Marianne is trying to get glimpses of her face so she can paint her face. But as you pointed out, Brian, Eloise is wearing this scarf that covers her face. Mm-hmm. And so it's an, a, an obstruction to Marianne's goal, but also it forces her and us to look at Eloise's eyes. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's such a... Just that one <laughs> moment, that one shot where she keeps looking back kind of at the camera, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Her right. eyes are so striking. It's just magical right. filmmaking. And, mm-hmm. and and the scene, which is, you know, it feel like you've I've seen the scene a hundred times in movies, which is the side shot of the two of them, yeah. right? And then right. she looks at her and then she looks back and then she looks away. And then when she turns again, you'd realize that she has been looking at her. Like that's only revealed when she turns away. I feel like I've seen that scene a million times and it's just so much better this time because <laughs> right. of just how beautiful that cinematography is and how each, how the look is revealed by where the camera is placed. We've seen the like love actually shot where or something where mm. it's like, Oh, we're seeing driver and passenger and they're just looking at each other. We're watching that happen, but we don't, we don't usually get the sort of we don't know that she's looking at her until she looks <laughs> turns to look. It's really cool. And I love what you just said, Michael, about the pacing being such a huge part of the language of this movie mm. where I don't know what the average length of a shot is in this movie, but I would bet money it's a lot longer, like a lot, two or three times probably the length of the average shot in mm any other sort of like mainstream film you know obviously you have things like action movies that are have incredibly short shot lengths and you know are super tightly edited and and dramas tend to be longer but even by drama standards i would think that the length of shot here is incredibly long and i mean it seems like a maybe an obvious thing to do in a movie about art like visual you know art within a frame but this movie is really inviting us into take a look at every single frame of this as its own piece of visual art. And so part of what makes the movie so stylish is the fact that it is so slowly paced that we're able to take in every single frame of it like a painting. Mm -hmm. 
again, it, it seems like maybe an obvious way to shoot this, but what a brilliant way to shoot this. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, and, and I think that part of that film language of this movie is how the shots, it's sort of the editing and the cinematography, what they're actually doing. You know, Michael, I'll let you talk about the about your favorite scene, I think. But the one thing that I that struck me this time, which I didn't think about the first time, is when they're sitting at the harpsichord, the sort of intro shot of them is from behind and a little bit far. And then suddenly it cuts to them the complete reverse of this, like where it's right up front, they are taking up the entire frame. So now suddenly we are in this very intimate space with them. But most movies, I think you would get maybe a side shot and then you get the front shot. So you sort of get eased into to right. that confrontational kind of moment. But instead, this movie goes from behind to in front in a way that feels it feels out of sync with the movie up until this point, but in a way that feels super purposeful because now they are shoulder to shoulder they're in they're, they're right there with each other and music is so jarring to hear so the mm, scene is mm, trying to mm, shake mm. you up in a number of ways right 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 that's actually exactly the scene that i want to talk about because i think that scene demonstrates how the cinematography and the editing are working together like you're saying trisha like maybe you could think of it as a first thought to shoot a movie about painting in a way where the visuals are like paintings, but it's not, it's not as simple as that, right? No. Like, like you're saying, it's, it's bringing out, it's how those shots work with the editing. So some shots are really long. And like this example that you're giving Brian, I think is maybe one of the best in the movie where a scene can be long and the pacing, you know, was, I was reading that Celine, the director, you know, it was all meticulously choreographed because, you know, she knew there wasn't going to be any music, like you're pointing out, Trisha, the rhythm had to come from the actors and from the blocking. And so it was, you know, you're going to take this many steps, five steps, not six, because that will change the tension and change the pacing. Mm. And so you have scenes that are, you know, partially shot in these long takes, but then it, it's not so long that every scene is a long take, right? There's a lot of editing that uh, is being wielded like the most powerful weapon ever. And this the example that you're talking about where it suddenly it cuts and because we haven't seen a cut in a while, it is jarring and it draws your attention and it has meaning. And so I think the way the film uses editing in conjunction with these long shots and selective use of shot reverse shot, like all of it is just, it's so masterfully being done to put us into the right headspace for this moment and connecting with the characters that the cinematographer Claire Mathon, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, used the phrase uh, like it's all about filming the dialectic of gazes. And I'm like, that's such a cool <laughs> term. Like, I just, I want to so be that French. Term. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Love it. It's, yeah. it's beautiful. I feel like what we're identifying overall with this movie it gets back to just kind of this incredible amount of intention. And like you said, confidence, Trisha, of, yeah. of the director of Celine Asiyama to just say, I am going to meticulously plan out the production of this film to the point where I'm thinking about how I'm almost going to create music and rhythm through choreography of the actors and through the editing and through the way the shot kind of lingers. And that's why it feels so perfect, because you can't do that by accident like you can have some happy accidents on set but to have an entire movie just kind of continue to put you into this almost hypnotic state mm -hmm. with this much precision that is done with a lot of intention and, and i was noticing while i was watching the movie i just felt good like my it was the kind of thing that people go to like they type like forest bathing or things that are good for your brain to like <laughs> 
You guys haven't heard about that idea? That, that's literally like a like a psychologically studied thing now. They call it forest bathing of like people like not having depression anymore if they just go spend time in a forest every day mm. away from like their devices. Legit. And this movie was giving me the same sensation, like but my overall like state of mind and like mental health <laughs> after finishing this movie felt improved because it it was like the opposite of my iPhone scrolling Twitter. It was I am savoring the moment. I am mm. like in this present moment with this film looking at gorgeous images and I care. I also have things that I want to see happen. So I just I'm really impressed that this director was able to mold an experience that I think the language thing you're talking about is what I'm identifying here. It's like this movie taught my brain a different language and my brain liked it. And I liked being in it. <laughs> right, and, I, right. and I watched it for a second time shortly afterwards because I wanted to go back to that space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think th there's this thing that frustrates me, which is how often I'll watch the first 30 minutes of a movie and go, this is awesome. Like, this is one of the best movies I've seen in a while. And then 90 minutes later, I'm like, it was fine. Like, it just sort of <laughs> like they, they start out so strong and they're like doing all these things and then it just sort of peters out and I get kind of bored and whatever, you know, the movies that are that really excite me are movies like this, where it's like the first 30 minutes. I'm like, this is one of the best movies ever. And then two hours later, I'm like, this is one of the best movies ever. <laughs> like, it's just it's <laughs> right. still I think it's what you're saying, Alex. It's like it actually manages to maintain what what it starts out with the whole way through, which is fantastic. Yeah. And, and another piece of the language of this, I think, has to do, we're talking about sound and editing. There's the spaces and the world of the story are also doing the same kind of, I don't know, I guess I want to call it dynamics, but it's not really what I mean. The contrast or the juxtaposition of silence and noise mm. in this movie is visual and it's in the editing, it's in the music, and it's in the dialogue. So the visual silence of the empty space that's often then contrasted with the visual noise of whatever is happening potentially or the action that's taking place in the frame. Nearly all of this movie takes place inside that house. And there's tons of visual silence in that house where the rooms are stripped down bare. There are these huge empty spaces. There's no one in a room, you know, some of the time when we're looking at it, that visual silence that's then, you know, broken up by whatever the noise of the action is that comes in that draws our attention. But the one that jumps into my mind is the frame where there it's the grasses, like the hill with the grasses <laughs> yeah. on it. And we, it cuts to that frame that is visually silent, essentially. There's nothing really happening in it. It's just this landscape. And then the all three of the central characters pop up from the grasses. Yeah. I say they pop up from the grasses. They <laughs> rise they, gracefully. They, they do kind of <laughs> pop up. It's it's like a little comic moment. Yeah, They do a bit, yeah. It's almost like a visual gag for a moment there. Right. But that's exactly what I'm talking about with visual silence and noise. And the rhythm that you're describing, Michael, is that as well. It's mm -hmm. within the frame, but within the spaces, the locations that the characters are occupying. And I have no idea how this movie does all of that so gracefully and makes the world feel so large mm. and yet so still. <sighs> well, the sound design is a big part of that, too. Astounding. Like, I, think, I think I was just noticing the, the soundscapes, yes. the, yes. the ocean, yes. the fire crackling. Yeah. Like, all of it is just mm -hmm. stunningly perfect i want to sit by that crackling fire so right. badly 
there, there's an interview with the sound editor and she was saying that the script, which is not available, just has so much sound in it. You know, we, mm. we did a whole video Smart. on Quiet Place about <laughs> writing sound in your scripts. But basically, she just said that Celine Siama just knew what she wanted so much from the sound design. And that's pretty rare with a lot of screenwriters or even directors a lot of the time is that sort of an afterthought almost. But you do get some who would just know how sound is going to impact the story that they're telling. And this is a great example. Again, this movie just is working on all fronts, like of everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like I, I want to be in the sound editing room with the sound designer as she's figuring out like the right moment. Here's she amateur, but figuring out who uh, like the right moment for the, the fire to pop. Like mm, where should yeah. the crackle be <laughs> yeah. between these two lines? Cause you know, it's, it's planned down to that. Cause the timing of the fire right. cracks are perfect right <laughs> yeah and you know again the the cinematography just go find interviews with all of these people and because they're just full of really yeah. fascinating things well and it's digital it, I mean, it was shot on a red camera this is a, a really fun blend of modern and old in the filmmaking style yes. and approach and like yes clearly Mm -hmm. digital is every bit as pretty as film everybody well the colors right. you can get you know <laughs> right with with you know this the modern ways we can color grade you know raw footage that was shot digitally and now we can watch it on our you know dolby vision tvs it, it is a different level of kind of like a color experience than even film can give us and i and i love that there's directors that are making these incredibly filmic movies using the latest technology and bringing out new layers of color and texture that we we have never seen before mm -hmm. yeah and and there's this amazing ability i think that we have now and by we i mean we as people with technology but also specifically these filmmakers where you have a very crisp david fincher kind of style of filmmaking and then you have a very free-flowing richard linklater style of filmmaking that kind of thing it's just like the camera's just here to just sort of wander and film people and whatever and i love that portrait of a lady on fire knives out parasite especially the sort of not in the like when we're in the, in the uh kim residence where it's like it feels so cinematic but it also feels so warm and mm -hmm. and like it feels like we are doing both those things at once and portrait of a lady on fire i think is a great example of that where it feels like we're just sort of wandering around just watching these characters and at the same time you're like but look at how beautiful the shot is and look at how perfectly framed this shot is i think of the word timeless when i think of this movie mm -hmm. and i'm trying i was trying to decide like what does that actually mean and i thought because i'm watching this movie for the second time and I'm like this feels like i'm watching a bergman film from the 60s or something right it has this like yeah. classic feel to it I think they looked at some of uh, those films as references. Specifically Bergman? Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. <laughs> but it also feels like something that's never been done before. Right. Right. And I think that that's mm -hmm. kind of, I think, how I'm defining timeless from now on is it feels classic, but also like it's from the future. <laughs> like also like it, it's mm -hmm. it's ahead of its time, but also feels like it's a throwback to something from a long time ago. And and yeah, that's that's sort of what's been exciting about a lot of these, this like new batch of movies that just feel like they're sort of able to do everything all at once it's my favorite mm, yeah. thing i think what you're identifying there is when i mm. see it when i see a new movie that is somehow both those things at once right yes right i feel like just the other thing you know again the the dp spent so much time like crafting like the right look of everything and to give their the skin texture a texture that evokes like a painting feeling but but you know it doesn't go too far in that direction to make the backgrounds full of contrast but make the faces like soft and almost like 
the light is almost sourceless. So it kind of appears like they are just glowing and emanating light. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's where a lot of this like warmth, like you were talking about, Brian, comes from. Is it does feel like these the faces in this movie like glow and have a, a texture and a world unto them, uh, like all their own. And it's amazing and how it works, like you're saying with Trisha with the spaces and how the spaces change based on kind of like who's in those spaces is I think really interesting and a, an important story tool. Like first of all, that it takes place on an island, right? So if mm-hmm. it's like as you're getting further removed from society, there's a kind of more of a freedom to express oneself. You know, the director also talked about then the mother leaves, right, at, at certain at a certain point. And so once the kind of authority is gone, there's more of a sorority that can emerge. And that's where the relationship with Sophie, the servant, also mm-hmm. starts to blossom and it becomes this more equal place where they can be themselves and i feel like that progression is also told via the spaces and the cinematography and all these things all together right something uh celine siyama talks about which i never considered while watching this movie is that it's a movie about equality and she said a lot of movies about relationships you never considered that no i I just (laughs) never I, i just i didn't think of these characters as being right i mean maybe maybe i didn't consider it because the movie is not trying to she was saying like a lot of movies about relationships have this sort of power dynamic where Mm. one has the power and the other one doesn't she said that's not what i wanted these characters to be and something i didn't think about until just now with what you were saying michael is that's also how sophie is treated Mm -hmm. she's not the servant especially when the mother goes away they're never treating her as the servant they're treating her as this other human being who is sharing a space with them you know and i think and i think maybe the reason i never considered it is because the movie handles it so well and it just it, it never thinks of these characters as being unequal it thinks of these characters as being on an even playing field well yes and no because there is that sense right at the beginning with sophie that she is sort of stuck you know, in Mm. her position a little bit and kind of has to stand back and really not speak unless she's spoken to to a degree. I know what you're saying, though, Brian, where because these characters are on an island and they are removed from larger society that we don't see anybody, you know, treating Sophie badly or anything like that. Right. And we also don't really get a sense of we know that Marianne is from like sort of working class, I I guess, whatever the Mm -hmm. like a, a tradesperson is essentially. And so we we get, we definitely know that she's in a different social class than Eloise and in a way is more free, right? Because of that fact where she doesn't have to be married off and sold off. And that's part of the dialogue, right? Where she's like, I'm just going to take over my father's studio. Yeah. There definitely is some awareness in the film of the sort of social hierarchy that these characters are sort of stuck in. Right. But I, I think in as much as the film is aware of it, the film is also incredibly deft at breaking down those social sort of, um, you know, barriers that are between these characters in this gorgeous way. Um, And yeah, if you read any interview with Celine Siama, what you see is the word sorority. And that's a really Mm. good word for how this movie overall feels. Right. Yeah. And to clarify, I meant sort of within these characters' relationships with each other. The movie very clearly says outside of these walls, there Mm. is this whole system and everything like that, you know, but we're not there. We're here, especially again, when the mother is away, it's like, we are free to just be ourselves. And that's what I meant. But absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's very clear that there's sort of all these expectations that are over there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things the movie does 
in its storytelling is it 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 does have power dynamics, but it it is slowly breaking those down. And like mm-hmm. we're saying, like as the mother leaves, and since you know there's less of that societal authority there, there's this freedom. That midpoint scene that I love, where you know Marianne is painting Eloise, and Eloise is like, "You think you're watching me? I'm watching you. Like mm-hmm. you think you have this kind of power as the observed, but who's watching you if you're watching me?" Uh, and I feel like that's where upon that happening and upon what little kind of power dynamic that was there before, like once that gets shattered, that's when they kind of are free to fall in love. And so it's kind of like as they all are finding this equality, that's when love and this like friendship can happen between them all. Mm -hmm. And and is that scene kind of truly before the bonfire scene? Yeah, shortly before. That's also kind of a midpointy moment, the titular moment of the Lady on Fire. Mm. But I love, I love the bonfire scene because, as, as the director said in an interview, it's almost like the idea of witches comes from you know this gathering of women uh, just to kind of be together and exchange information, and you've got medicine women with these herbs that mm-hmm. it's kind, of, some kind of like old timey LSD going on there, and you got the woman who kind of has. Seems like she's, you know, she's like the abortion provider, but also kind of taking care of unwanted children and this whole community of women kind of taking care of each other and being there for each other. I love the idea of showing, you know, what real witches were, which was (laughs) this community, this sorority of women on this island just being together and then having that haunting, amazing moment where they sing that song. Mm -hmm. Uh, but a transcendent moment in just film. Well, and going back to spaces and locations here, there's this wildness that the women, when they're outside of that house, that they're being invited out into, that's away from, you know, literal walls and literal barriers. And so I think it's so beautiful that you know, it starts off with the construction of you have this little walk and you can take a walk every day. And then it goes into Okay, that's where, you know, we start running, we see Heloise start running. And then the more time that they spend outside, the more we're starting to see them break free of their sort of, you know, expectations or the expectations that have been placed on them. And so, so many of the most beautiful scenes in this, the scene where Marianne and and Eloise kiss for the first time is in that cave on Mm -hmm, the beach. mm -hmm. We see, you know, Eloise goes out and swims or just trying to figure out if she can swim. And and the scene with the the women around the fire, the bonfire is a pinnacle, like example of that. It's so primal. It's so wild and outdoorsy. And I love the motifs here, the natural motifs of the sea and the water, which are both in literature, you know, symbols of chaos and and um, freedom in different ways. And, you know, fire is purging, right? It, it burns mm-hmm. down something old and, mm-hmm. and you know, things are resurrected out of fire. And it just, ah, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. Like that sound is like <laughs> the feelings one has about this movie right. summed up in a sonic yes. yeah, moment. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. I think also what what's cool is, you know, as as the movie gets toward its end, you know, you kind of start to remember, you know, the framing story and that, you know, this is another kind of coming off of Lost in Translation, like we did last week, another mm, very similar romance yeah, story. Right. Mm-hmm. Ticking clock. Yeah, but but that the director specifically said she wanted to, you know, not just examine romance, but also like the memory of mm-hmm. uh, a romance and a relationship. And I think that is also just handled so deftly and beautifully. And, you know, you're spending these last moments with them. They both know where they're going and, and watching them wrestle with the acceptance of that and the different defense mechanisms that come up. And I feel like it it all for me, totally lands the the bittersweet thing, right? If like that, this is ending is partially why this is so powerful. And then we get to have mm-hmm. that kind of little epilogue, those closing moments where she sees the painting of Eloise, you know, Marianne's at the the gallery and you like all of those moments, I feel like are, it, it just captures that idea that part of what made something special is it's, you know, the... That it ended. That it ended. Yeah. yeah. That it's it's impermanence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love, once again, this movie. There, there's a lot of beautiful art films that I really enjoy that lean on the art and don't bother to do other things that we expect from a movie that's leaning on its uh, plot or leaning on kind of being clever. And this movie does all of it. It's also clever and also has setups and payoffs that are really satisfying. And both of those scenes in the epilogue are amazing payoffs for earlier setups. And it's it just it, it's like the best kind of setup and payoff where you get to have the portrait of her and she's she's sending a message to her, you know, her mm-hmm. former lover through the portrait. And then you get to see her reacting to the to the full orchestral version of this song uh, Miriam is trying to play on the harpsichord and it's both it's such meaningful payoffs it's not even just a setup and payoff it's clever it's emotionally resonant as well Uh, it's just so good Mm -hmm. and of course the exploration the scene where they're sort of arguing about um the myth uh you know the Orpheus myth Mm -hmm. that's a setup yeah it mm-hmm. is a setup because we obviously see the painting that she does of it later. But that's exactly right. what you're talking about, Michael, where it's textually introducing the idea of we often make choices to let things end because they have to. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily it's a sad thing about life, but it's also a beautiful, rich thing about life that things end when they're textually discussing what that means, like the choices that characters are making. It's just a really beautiful reminder that there's not a moral to the story. And I I read a quote from Celine Siama about this, where she said, you know, people think that myths are about morals and they're not. They're about tension. Hmm. And where we find ourselves, I have it written down actually, the tension and the question. Myth is not about lessons. And I wanted to embody that. It's about the tension and the question. And so when we think about myth and the way that the characters are finding themselves in different places within this myth, and of course, it's directly referenced again when um, Eloise says, turn back right. to her mm-hmm. right when she's yeah. turned yeah. around, yeah. you know, right when she's about to walk out the door. It's like, there are greater forces at work that are keeping them apart, but also they're making choices to let those greater forces end what's going on in their relationship. 
in, you know, sort of a similar way to the end of Lost in Translation, where mm-hmm. it's like this has an end to it. And that in itself is part of what yeah makes this so beautiful. Right. And uh, Before Sunrise also. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Although uh, that, that, that at least ends with the question of are they going to see each other a year from now or, or, you know, that kind of thing. But um, yeah, you know, there's something not to get like all non-filmy for a second, but I always think it's interesting that people refer to like past relationships as failed relationships. Mm. And it's like, look, Mm -hmm. most of us have way more relationships in our life than whatever the last one we have is when we when we leave this world. Right. Doesn't mean they're failed. Like you can be with someone for a period of time and share something and that can be beautiful in and of itself. You know, and sometimes you choose to end it and sometimes it has to end like in the case like this but the sort of emotional dividends that that pays off over the rest of your life is is beautiful and i think that's what lost in translation and this movie are are doing basically it's sort of saying like you can have this thing that can end and that doesn't mean it was wrong it doesn't mean there was anything bad about it and this movie so beautifully returns the choice and the agency to women who we think of as having none Mm -hmm. particularly in the case of sophie right Mm -hmm. she makes a very strong choice in this movie to end something and we think about there's so much taboo around abortion and there of course back then it was this incredibly shameful secret sinful thing and the way that this movie handles it is so beautiful. And then the way that the women choose to remember that ending by mm-hmm, yeah. having it painted where they recreate it and stage it. And I can't believe that there's that moment in the movie earlier where Sophie is being comforted by a baby mm-hmm. yeah. while she's having an abortion. It's just like, it's, I've seen, so, there's so many abortion scenes in film that are just horrifying. And we yeah. need those to remember why we don't go back there. Right. We need those to remember that that was a past that was lived by many, many people. However, this is a really beautiful meditation on, again, women making choices in spite of the oppressive society that they live in, claiming some agency over their own lives. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And another example of what I was saying of we understand there is this system outside these walls, but that's right. but these characters are here in a sort of safe space. So there is no discussion about is this okay to do am i allowed to do this or whatever it's just matter of fact and that's what makes it beautiful yeah yeah they automatically help her there's not even a question right Mm -hmm. where and when she comes out and says like you know basically i'm pregnant it three months pregnant and again not shamefully treated or she's not even hesitant about telling marianne about it because there's already a sense of like this is an ally that i'm just talking to yeah what i love about the movie also and Maybe also is, is what's so impressive, yet another one thing that's impressive, that is how it navigates these things with care and nuance and that it isn't concerned yes. with the morality of it or yeah, yeah. trying to project morality of or discuss any of that. It's It feels like it's just portraying, uh, yeah, like what it is and, and holding space for you know you to have feelings about it, but it's making you think about these things and, and confront yourself with it. And I guess that I'm resonating with what you were saying earlier, Trisha, about it. it's, you know, myths not being about the lesson, it's about the question and the tension. And I feel like that mm-hmm. that really does, the more I'm thinking about it, feel like this movie where it's not trying to tell you how to feel or how to think about it, but it's confronting you with all these things that then is going to make you 
think about it and deal with it. And it's doing it in this beautifully artful way, literally. And also, you know, I, I love that scene, like you point out where they, the characters choose to remember the abortion by having it painted. And just that, that statement also just what art can do and yes. using art as a weapon and why it's important for everyone to be able to create art and to yep. be able to share it so that people can see other people's lives and experience like just all of that is in this movie without it being you know broadcast and in your yeah. face in any way and that just is uh extremely impressive yes yeah, i read a really interesting analysis of that whole sequence and i i loved what the writer was saying which was so usually we see like abortion spaces in a movie are very clinical or cold or scary uh that, that you know that's already being subverted in this film where it's kind of like this is the old healer woman of the community mm -hmm. in her warm house with the warm crackling fireplace there's not a contradiction between children and abortion like like, like right. she, she's being comforted by a baby by children while also making a choice to not have children herself that's all happening in the same space there's they're not separated mm -hmm. and there's also the choice by the two main characters heloise in, in particular basically kind of tells Marianne, don't yeah. avert your eyes, don't look away. Like this is a female experience that no like no man looks at, no man portrays, nobody in our society wants to acknowledge is like a part of life. Let's look at it. Let's document she's the one who says let's document it in a painting. Like let's make this like this is part of life too and should be acknowledged as such. And not in this scary clinical way but in like this is a part of life and it always has been evolved human society from the beginning um and, and so all of that was just like wow you managed to do that in this movie through the visuals through the text of the story uh, just incredible yes and her saying that is again invoking this idea of looking and observing and just mm, the, yeah, the examination gaze. of who is looking who's doing the looking who's being looked at and what is that what does that mean? And just all, all of that. Well, just the super obvious meta thing that's happening here, which is this is a female director and the way the world looks through her eyes and the story that's being told through her eyes is not a story that could be told by a man. If one thing I was, I was taking away from the film as it was ending was like, oh my God, how many Celine Siamas have we like denied ourselves over film sure. history? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I want, like I, like, like I said, my brain liked being in this movie. Like I, whatever rhythm and tone and pace and everything this movie created was so special. And I wanted to like live in it and how many, how much of this is like, is, is coming from that female gaze and how much have we been denied that, you know, for so many years because we didn't have this strong female presence in, in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've been some of my favorite movies over the past two years have been directed by women. And I've been so happy to see stories that I wouldn't have otherwise seen or see them from a perspective that I wouldn't have otherwise seen. You know what I mean? It just feels so, again, it's like you said, it's just like, why hasn't this been happening all the time? Well, and, and there's some great text in the movie as well, where Marianne's defending her, her original portrait and saying, well, you know, is, I don't know if this is how you actually are, but there are rules, there are conventions, there are right, ways right. that you paint yep. people. And she's referring to kind of like the patriarchal, you know, art regulations mm -hmm. <laughs> and eloise pushes back and is like okay well 
like that, that's not really me though uh and and i think once again the film in that meta way is talking about almost speaking to other female filmmakers and saying you don't have to limit yourself to the established guidelines and rules right. like show us what your vision is how you see the world that is a potentially a different way of thinking about cinematography or pacing or whatever i can't express enough how and i'm i'm sure you guys feel this too how calm i feel in this movie or um a scene and just sort of like embraced in this movie because there are no men in it mm-hmm. <laughs> basically it's really it's jarring when the guy appears at the end when she walks into the kitchen <laughs> and there's like the dude there yeah <laughs> like... i saw a reviewer who was interviewing celine siama was like there's a patriarchy jump scare it's <laughs> <laughs> true <laughs> Which is exactly how it feels when she walks in and that dude's there. You're like, ah, no. (laughs) But yeah, it's this not a feeling that nothing bad is going to happen to you necessarily. Because, you know, just having like this all women utopia island (laughs) is is so is beautiful. But that doesn't mean that there aren't hard things about what's going on in these interpersonal relationships and in this world, obviously. But just that there is this especially when those three women are in this sort of like perfect sorority together, there's also space for us, the viewer to be in that. And so that lovely shot where Eloise is cooking, she's taking on the servant's role. She's wearing the apron. She's cooking, even though she's part of the aristocracy. And then Marianne comes in and she's just pouring wine for everybody. And then Sophie is sitting there, doing her embroidery, which I love the shots of Sophie doing her embroidery. Mm. She's the one creating something visual and beautiful. So she is elevated into the position of an artist in that moment. It's just, and it's that one frame. It's so gorgeous with the crackling fire behind Mm. them. Motifs. (laughs) Anyway, it is a really good example of this movie doesn't cater to its male viewers. It doesn't Mm. care if men see themselves in this movie or not. It invites men into this story male viewers into this story perhaps but doesn't need them to tell this story which is yes more of this please well and i I feel like i got like i got the privilege of being given access to this like Mm. rarefied like only feminine space and i was like kind of jealous i I really like i really (laughs) like it here this is nice it's pretty great. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm going to re-recommend Never Rarely, Sometimes Always for anyone who still oh, hasn't yeah. seen it because that, that's how I felt watching that movie too was I felt like I was, again, like I like that you said the word invited because I don't feel like I'm a fly on the wall. Mm-hmm. It's, there's not there's nothing voyeuristic about it. It's like right. I feel like I am, I'm in a space that I haven't been before, but I'm welcomed there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A long conversation could have mm-hmm. been, be, be <laughs> have. <having. laughs> yeah. <laughs> But I guess just the the other thought that I have, you know, I I kind of always try to then ask what's on the other side of this like revelation, right? And and like you're saying, Brian, I I also I think in, inviting is a great word because I do feel invited, I do feel warm and safe here, and I, I feel like there's for me a thing I think about is that the portrayal of men in cinema feels like like the bandwidth spectrum of like the kinds of people men are allowed to be on screen is more narrow than women are. There hasn't been enough opportunity for there to be stories about women to fully explore that. I feel like there's something also just purely human about the story and these Mm. people. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel like 
men are allowed to be represented or have stories told about them that let them be human in these similar ways, if, if that makes sense. Like the, the ex, there are expectations on men that similarly, I think, prevent them from getting to be full people in, mm. in a different way. And so I think having these stories also just lets us examine what it is to be a human in a full way. Right. We also have movies like First Cow by Kelly Reichardt, which is a movie written and directed by a woman about men where the men are able to be affectionate towards each other and that kind of thing and not sort of the, oh, we have to be this kind of thing, you know? So it's like people are different and there's a whole <laughs> range of people and let's celebrate that, please. Patriarchy harms everybody yeah. as a reminder. <laughs> Doesn't only harm women. And I think yeah. that this movie does a is a reminder of that, mm. even though, yeah, it, it certainly is not about men and doesn't try to be. But uh, like you said, I'm glad you guys feel welcome in this movie. Me too. I feel like very, very deep personal, you know, sisterhood bond to this uh, in a way that I think is special. But I'm it's a relief to know that men are willing to see the willing to be present in this movie and like put themselves, you know, in a story that is, like I said, not about them. Um, that shouldn't be remarkable. But here yeah. we are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, too, because I think, like, like I was mentioning, like the jealousy almost or the kind of longing. It's interesting what you say, Michael. I wonder now I'm thinking about like what what is the fraternity, like the healthy Ooh. like period mm -hmm. piece fraternity version of this? And how would that feel? And, and if, you know, if it's a masculine space that might have a slightly different energy, but the, the love the, and the equality, like I want to see that on the male side, too. And like what? What does the men, the healthy man version of this look like? I'm mm -hmm. just curious about that. Watching it this time, I was thinking about, we recently talked about The Lighthouse with Maggie Mae Fish. <laughs> and I feel like not that's healthy, kind of maybe. not healthy <laughs> yeah. right. and is actually examining all of the problems that, you know, like you're saying, the, the masculine space and the things that would be brought in with a masculine yeah. space and kind of all the toxicity that. And how harmful it is. Yeah, we yeah. need. We need we need a healthy, healthy masculine space. <laughs> right. Figure yes. out what that is. Yes. Yeah. Also, tiny note, we something we haven't really talked about is this is also a queer story. Mm. And that that is something else that should be not only celebrated, but also something that we shouldn't feel like is on the other side of some chasm for uh, for those of us who don't identify in that space, you know, and I think that men should watch movies about women and straight people should watch queer stories because they're just effing uh sorry uh <laughs> stories about love or just about characters maybe they're not even about love they're just about people and there's space mm -hmm. for all of that and i think we're we're seeing a lot more of that and uh that's worth celebrating as a gay person it's funny to think about like oh i can't watch a movie about a gay romance because like i'm not gay it's like every movie i watch about romance <laughs> is about like not like not my experience of romance but it's about humans who fall in love which is right. like of course it's gonna get me i'm not gonna like not be moved by eternal sunshine in the spotless mind because they're not a gay couple like it's, right it's the human experience so yeah it's, right. just, it's funny to remember that that might be a thought people have of like oh it's two <laughs> women well i can't identify with that it's like two humans <laughs> m meanwhile men will you know think lesser of a woman if she doesn't like reservoir dogs or something like that not even <laughs> considering there's no women in that movie except for the one who dies um, who has no lines. Uh, but then as soon, you know, as soon as the expectation goes the other way, it's like, well, I'm not going to watch a movie about women. It's like, okay, cool. Maybe, maybe check your, your expectations. Are these there people? A bit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't understand. 
Well, and again, I think it's, you know, it's easy to put the blame on people and like that individual is an evil person. But like you were saying, Tricia, like patriarchy harms everybody. We're all part of the same system. And that is the same system that has been dictating to us what movies we get to see and what movies we don't get to see for the last hundred years. So like when we were talking about Pride and Prejudice, Michael, you were pointing out that you were you know a little resentful that that movie hadn't been shown to you right or that it wasn't marketed toward you mm. as though for some reason you might not want to see it right that's not you you know not going out and seeking out necessarily movies that's again this larger system that is assuming that you don't want to see it and not showing it to you on purpose and that's the problem right there right we could talk about this movie for yes. forever. Mm. <laughs> uh, and we're not done. We still have lessons. So why don't we move into what lessons we're going to take away from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Quick reminder, if you're enjoying the podcast, consider supporting us on Patreon. We have a Patreon where there's a ton of bonus episodes on lots of fun topics and some controversial movies of the Star Wars persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of fun stuff for patrons over there. Um, okay, so lessons from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Brian, why don't you start us off? Uh, yeah, we talked about it um, a little, but I, I love a good what was this all for scene at the end of a movie. And uh, we talked, uh, I talked on our Hobbit episode, speaking of Patreon, our, our <laughs> Patreon episode on the Hobbit trilogy wow. about the, the peak end rule where our impressions are largely based on the highest highs and the lowest lows, but then mm. also how you feel at the end of something. And I talked about the Hobbit because I talked about the lowest lows, but, <laughs> but with this movie... I think when I thought back to this movie over the past year and change since between the first time and the second time I watched it, I thought about that that final moment at the symphony where, where you know, we we're watching Marianne watch Heloise experience the symphony and sort of what that scene does. You know, so many movies have this resolution scene that tries to, to wrap it all up, right? And, and a lot of times the, the common thread is... A scene, you know, my father was going to take me to the circus, but he never did. And then the resolution scene is like, <laughs> now they're at the circus. Like, oh, yeah. see what happened? Like, it's all good. And I love the Coen brothers will, will sort of mess with this. They'll, they'll have like mm-hmm. no country for old men or, or serious man where it just ends and it sort of compels you to go back and realize that the last scene was <laughs> what was it all for scene that you didn't realize was at the time or Big Lebowski and Burn After Reading just have a character basically going, well, I don't know what all that was about, but <laughs> here's some credits (laughs) yeah Yeah. exactly (laughs) i think fargo may be the only one where you just have you know uh margie say like you know we're doing okay norm and it like that's such a powerful thing to say in the world of fargo right but i think that it's it's interesting because it's like you do want to have this payoff but you also don't want it to feel schmaltzy and, and obvious you know and i think what's interesting about portrait of lady on fire is that not and of course the you have the her looking at the portrait scene, but I'm specifically just taught, which obviously does its own wrap up, you know, like, oh, the relationship meant something to her. Like she, you know, she didn't just forget about me the next day. But when she's looking at the symphony, it's like the intention there is very obvious. It's there's no, there's nothing subtle about that. It's like, oh, I've never seen a symphony. And this character sort of has to, is still opening up to the world. Now she is at the symphony. She is fully open. She is taking this all in. We're seeing that. That's all obvious, but it's done in such a, beautiful way and like well-executed way that you don't feel like oh we're watching that scene 
we're watching the scene where the characters at the circus, you know, or whatever. And it's sort of understated and powerful at the same time, which is weird. <laughs> it's like, cause there's no dialogue. It's just, we're letting you do the work, but also it's this hugely like powerful emotional moment. And then also it's through Marianne's eyes. So it's through her gaze. We're not just seeing Eloise experience this. We're watching Marianne see her experience this, of course, which then makes it that much more powerful because we are seeing it's like a closure for both of them, right? It's it's right. an emotional closure for Eloise, but it's also a, okay, this was worth something. We There was a change that happened as a result of this relationship that Marianne is experiencing. All of that, I think the lesson is like, tell me why I just watched your movie, but mm. do it in a way that doesn't feel obvious or trite. Do it in a way where I'm going to feel, I'm going to, in that last moment when the credits roll, I'm still going to ha- be as emotionally charged as I was during the climax of your movie, as opposed mm. to a lot of resolution scenes where it sort of feels like we just need to unwind and we're going to show you something you kind of could have figured out anyway, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times it's sort of is like, OK, that was nice. It's it's just fine. But this is an example of like the last image of the movie, the last moment of the movie left me just as excited as I was during the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, th- that it's it's ending on what it means. It's yeah. not concerned with you know the mechanics of well now she's living over here right right she's just she's become a frequent opera goer and now that means she's happy it's like it's being (laughs) done in the way that like transmits to the audience the most meaning possible like you feel the meaning and again i think it's really like you point out that it's through marianne's eyes we're watching her watching eloise watch this symphony and so it's like the meaning of what the symphony means hits eloise and is then transmitted to marion and then is transmitted to us uh-huh. because we're in that chain of watchers also and so the movie is also going out still doing all the meta things about art while also wrapping up the story it's so goddamn good i hate it <laughs> <laughs> anyway sorry alex what's your lesson it's it's actually exactly what you just said it's it's the <laughs> it's that incredible integration of all these layers throughout the entire piece and i think that's the goal for me of any great piece of cinema is can you have this piece of art that operates on all levels all the time where you have you know the the entire story and the characters and everything is being built out of this thematic core you're trying to explore this tension this theme this idea okay so you've got that your cinematography is also exploring this theme this idea it adding another layer of meaning to that conversation also what's like happening in the movie is literally about gazing and art and is it just like everything in this movie all the time is integrated into this like Mm. perfect like uh, russian doll that just goes infinitely (laughs) out and in and that that's like the most rewarding film experience for me when I can go back and watch a movie over and over again and realize how many layers are happening and and find new layers and just get more and more out of a movie. So yeah, I don't know even how to apply that or how to like replicate that. But I think it's it's just kind of like the North Star to aim for uh, when I think about what I would love if I, you know, were to write and direct a feature film, you know, what would be like the total victory scenario is you end up with a film that can operate in all those levels at all at the same time and and pull it off and and it's not doing it in a didactic way that feels annoying or in your face it's just 
naturally built into the architecture of every part right. of the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's actually a little connected to my lesson, which just is make a movie that's personal to you. That means something to you that you believe in that you guys have been listening to interviews with Celine Siama. I've read a few myself and there is this beautiful vulnerability in this movie that is embodied in the characters and is part of the text, right? There's the idea that when we are really seeing someone that there's this like sort of fragile honesty and that's kind of the vulnerability that creates the romance between those two characters. And Celine Siama has been, you know, honest about like, this is something that I believe in and have lived. And that's a good place to start for a movie. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be like a real actual story from your life. Probably no one wants to see that actually, <laughs> but start with a theme as you're talking about Alex, start with a theme of something that really intrigues you and moves you. Mm-hmm. And then engineer from there, mm-hmm. get at what you mean. And it, it could be, a, a, you know, in this case, it's a period film that takes place on an island in the past and it, all of this stuff. That's a really good start, especially if you're making one of your first movies and writing one of your first scripts is if you're trying to make something powerful, make something real, which seems obvious to say. But yeah, Celine Siama, I have a quote from her that says, Utopias are not ideas we have in our minds. They are not things we wish we were living. They are rooted in our own experience. So this film, you know, people say it's a utopia about this all women world. And I kind of feel that way when I'm in it. But Celine Siama is like, no, no, this is experience. I've lived this. Mm-hmm. I've lived this feeling. I've lived this mm-hmm. theme. Yeah, I, I think that's, yeah, being able to identify and capture that that honest feeling and like like you're saying even if it's not you know don't transcribe your life onto a piece of paper i did that in college it's not good (laughs) but yeah identifying that that honest piece of reality that motivates you is that's like what art is and like share that with people and then Mm. we get to like we all get to experience a thing you also can you know you can also write action movies and comedies i'm not saying you can't i'm just saying yeah right we also need more of all of that as long as it's honest right yeah yeah, interestingly, like it doesn't feel utopian to me again because there are these these systems that we know exist beyond the walls of of the movie. You know, and that's kind of how Lost in Translation is, right? It's like we spend yep. almost no time with these two characters' partners, so it's like it feels like, oh, what a great little moment we're in right now. But we know because we've seen it, there is this other stuff going on. You know, and I think like that that that's what keeps both those movies from feeling like there's any sort of utopian element to them. To me, is because both movies state that there is there are problems this is just a nice little nice little window into a a happy moment in these characters it's a temporary utopia yeah yeah Mm -hmm. that's what speaks to me about is that yeah a utopia can exist for a person but it is impermanent like it's a fleeting Mm -hmm. thing that can happen but that's that feeling and spirit that you want to chase yeah this movie has had me thinking a lot about perspective obviously and when creating something what are like i guess just kind of examining my own perspectives and you know what is the michael vision of a story like what is each individual of us what are the things that we're bringing to the table that might make our artistic storytelling unique or whatever and it's mostly a lesson for me is just kind of motivated me to want to seek out different people and and kind of understanding like that like great things can come 
when perspectives like clash and combine. And I don't even know that like this is a, a, a lesson that's like from this movie necessarily, but it's like a thought that spawned of just like how powerful as we were talking about, you know, this movie is made by these people. And because it was made by those people, it can like, it only exists in the form it is by those people. So who are the people you want to surround yourself with that's going to form your perspective and Mm. who's going to help you do something Mm -hmm. hopefully new, but mostly kind of like what you're saying, Trisha, like getting at something that's honest and real and being able to broadcast that in a way that maybe breaks through the conventional language of film and mm-hmm. tells a story in a new way. So that, yeah, that's kind of my lesson, just inspired to find other perspectives and mash them together and break them apart and see the commonalities and the differences and see what comes from that. Mm-hmm. Which kind of translates to my, what am I watching? Okay. Transitions. So I'm going to <laughs> try to... <laughs> Yeah, bridge this. So, so I recently watched. There's a channel on YouTube called Vsauce. Wow, wow. Many people will know Vsauce. It's one of the best channels ever. Uh, Vsauce recently released a video called "The Future of Reason," and it's going to be very difficult to summarize it. But essentially, what this channel does that I like is it takes complex ideas and just kind of keeps asking, "But what is that thing?" And keeps going down and down until it's like broken into just the fundamental, like mechanical description of this thing. This sounds like our writing, our writing sessions. <laughs> <laughs> well, right. I, I've been watching this. I realized how big of an inspiration Vsauce has been for me. But so in this video, he's talking about reason. It was made kind of in collaboration with the Bill and Melinda Gates Fund and, and a book that Bill Gates recently released. But it's sort of asking the same questions that we're all asking, right? Which is like, we as a society are divided. We are facing existential threats. Social media is awful and dividing us. And it keeps drilling down into like, why? Like, what are the fundamental elements of our human brains that cause these problems to happen? And it's basically just really fascinating and goes into all these like psychological things of talking about reasoning and how we have this kind of vision of, uh, we use logic and reason to come to like all these great conclusions. Like, isn't reason great? But if reason is great, why are we so bad at coming up with good solutions to problems? And so it talks about how reasoning is also just a like evolved to be a social, biological thing. It talks about like if there's a room of people that are trying to guess how many beans are in a jar, the average guess of people is always more accurate than any yep. one person's. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's also making this argument Collective that reason, intelligence. Yeah, yeah. reasoning is yeah there to be done with people in mm. a group. And it's the common discussion and commonality between all these differing points of view that helps us uh, arrive at the best thing. That's one of the key things that has obviously been lost from our society with all the, the Twitters and the social medias <laughs> and silos. Yeah. Anyway, so it's just it's a very like nice, clear, engaging breakdown of human psychology and also offers some like these are potential ways for us to get out of it. But first, we need to acknowledge these flaws, these fundamental flaws that we have in our monkey brains so that we can address them 
properly and, and point us on the right. So anyway, it's one of the best videos I feel like I've ever watched. I highly recommend everyone go watch it. The Future Reasoning by Vsauce. Nice. Trisha, what have you been watching? I'm trying to decide actually what I'm recommending. I have two very different movies written down. Um, I'm going to recommend the one that is a little bit more related to Portrait of a Lady on Fire. There's a movie from, I got on a little bit of a kick watching Emmanuel Bayard movies, um, who is this incredibly gorgeous French actress, if you don't know who she is. Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible. You know who she is, Claire from the original Mission Impossible movie. One of the most beautiful people ever. Anyway, she made a movie in 1991, written and directed by, actually directed by Jacques Rivette, called The Beautiful Troublemaker. That's the English translation of the title. It is four hours long, I'm here to tell you. And it is about, uh, Emmanuel Bayard plays a woman who poses uh, naked mostly for an elderly painter. Uh, and and um, I guess he's he is a painter, but he also like does a lot of just sketching. He's an artist in a variety of, of media it is definitely in conversation with what is a power dynamic about being observed and observing and you know art basically like what do we accept from our artists and their lives uh which portrait of lady on fire is not so much about that but this movie definitely is within the context of this relationship anyway i'm not gonna universally say it's like a great movie and there's lots of gazy things happening in there that are <laughs> gazy <laughs> mixed um but it's a really interesting film and uh you know you can watch it in like four one hour chunks you don't have to watch four hours of it all back to back but anyway it is a really interesting film about art and posing and sitting for artists and what that kind of looks like and can be. If you like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, this is a really interesting film with Emmanuel Bayard. It is beautiful because she is super beautiful. So anyway, <laughs> there you go. That is the only reason. A subgenre <laughs> of people posing for painting movies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Awesome. Alex, what have you been watching? So I went and saw The Father with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Olivia Coleman. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really enjoyed it. It was, I mean, enjoy is maybe an interesting word for the movie. It's, it's a really painful movie and really kind of broke my heart open for the experience of dementia, of Alzheimer's, of your mind just starting to, you know, kind of your sense of time and space and people falling apart without giving too much away. The movie, it just is really interesting in a way that I didn't expect. I, I didn't know much about the film until someone on our Patreon. A Discord chat actually brought up the fact that it's not just a movie about somebody who has, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's. It's like a dementia simulator. Like the movie mm-hmm. is putting you truly in the headspace of that experience in a way that I had never experienced before in a movie. And and I think I love anytime a, a film can use the tools of cinema to create empathy and to create, you know, just I thought about, you know, like my my grandpa before he died, you know, he was, you know, like most people, you know, as they're getting close to the end, you know, he, he was not really there and not really remembering things and not really, and and, and it's frustrating for the caregivers of these people to have to like deal with that. And we usually see those stories told from the outside where we empathize with the caregiver almost more than the aging person because it's like oh well like it's so difficult to deal with this person who doesn't know who you are and they're forgetting things but it's another thing to be on the on the inside of the ex- that experience and I, I really appreciated a movie attempting that and, and i think pulling it off 
Yeah, it almost does the memento thing, right? Of sort of saying like, this character is experiencing this, so we're going to find a way through the filmmaking to make you experience it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had, it had that layer of almost like, yeah, like a Christopher Nolan-y kind of twisty thriller in some moments because you're like, this is, you know, you're you're having the almost hallucinatory out of sync, out of time experience of the editing and the actors changing and it, it does a really good job of like screwing with your head as the viewer so mm-hmm. yeah it's really really interesting movie and uh, anthony hopkins is amazing and of course olivia coleman is always great so mm-hmm. can't can't really mm-hmm. go wrong there yes brian what have you been watching uh super quick one because i don't want to say too much about it but i watched uh bad education which is a 2020 movie with hugh jackman and allison janney and it is a real story about a 2004 embezzlement scandal at a public school system in long island and it's a movie like something like portrait of lady on fire where the less you know the better or the father uh where just actually seeing how this story played out uh, is more exciting by watching the movie than by looking it up first and then just watching a movie based on it because it is one of those movies where you're like, oh, okay, I assume this is happening, but oh, also that's happening. Okay, cool. But it's uh, it's really entertaining. It's on uh, HBO, uh, so you can watch it if you have uh, if you have Max. Um, the performances are, of course, great. Alice and Janney just every time, every time. Yeah. It's a really entertaining movie and like fun to watch. But then it'll sort of surprise you with these emotional, thematic kind of things that happen where you're, it sort of forces you to question exactly how you feel about these characters rather than deciding like, oh, that's the good guy, clearly. And that's the bad guy, clearly. You're kind of like, I mean, it is, the, but uh, okay, yeah, <laughs> like I see where they're coming from, that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, bad education. Check it out. Nice. Awesome. Well, great. This has been our conversation about Portrait of a Lady on Fire. I want to say thank you again to our sponsor, Mubi. I should also mention that Celine Siama's next film will premiere soon on Mubi in many countries also. So lots of reasons to sign up. You'll be supporting us. You'll be supporting art house cinema and also getting 30 days of, of movies for free. So Mubi.com slash Beyond the Screenplay, M-U-B-I.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. Thank you also, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. It's, as always, really fun to chat with all of you guys in the Discord, hear you guys yell about the votes that we... uh, (laughs) Our recent Disney vote. Make you uh, choose right between (laughs) your children to... uh... (laughs) But yes, thank you to all of you guys. Thank you to our producer, Vince Major. Thank you to our editor, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. If you enjoy the podcast, tell a friend about it, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Au revoir. Bye. Bye.